namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasami So, <laughs> what to talk about? Perhaps talk a bit about insight, inspiration, confidence, doubt. Giving these talks is interesting because it's not a kind of a planned uh, curriculum. So the way we operate, the kind of ground study that is necessary for uh, this the, the language that we use in this teaching you have to do that yourself really we don't we don't offer a uh, a kind of university course in basics of buddhism but it's helpful to get those down yourself it, it's a good use of intellect so the, the main body of teaching is really the the four noble truths so the amount of time that you can put into uh, memorizing that structure and getting the Pali words down and writing them down, writing it out, writing out the Noble Eightfold Path, writing out the Four Truths, this can be very helpful because that's uh, that's a kind of go-to teaching that we're recommended to develop and within it all the other teachings fall into place. So you you if you if you study those four noble truths uh, academically and you uh, read a few commentaries around it, that gives you some intellectual confidence. It gives you um, a kind of pathway to question what you're what you're experiencing in meditation and um, in your life, and hopefully it gives you a pathway to free the mind from suffering. So there are. There are the basic formula, and we're going through some of them in the, in the chanting. And then there's lots of commentary. I don't know what Lompa Svedo says, or what Lompa Cha says, or so on and so forth. So, so that's one way we get confidence, is through study. But, I don't know about you, I found sometimes if I do too much study, I get, then I get more doubt. So if I take, from my own mind, if I take more and more refinements of definitions on intellectual structures from someone else who for them that might be quite you know significant analysis of more and more refined parts of the noble eightfold path or whatever and i read them i might feel to some extent inspired but more often than not i just get i get i get so many concepts so many ideas in my head i just start to spin around in in, in doubt and maybe that's just the way my mind works i don't appreciate too much analysis. I need some, I want some. I, I want to use my intellect, but too much just gets me get me confused. So if I read like Abhidhamma, personally I just find it my head starts to hurt. Others not so so there's so there's the um, intelligent use of intelligence, I suppose. But imagine having no no intellectual structures then you're not using your intellect, or at least your intellect doesn't have the pathways that the Buddha suggests. So, anyways, that's one way you can you can have both confidence and doubt. 
But that confidence, as, as I think we all know, is, is um, challenged. It's challenged by your, your own life experience. And, and because we're not passing a... We're, we're not going to have an exam at the end of this retreat. And I'll give out a certificate whether you get A, B, or C. or um, We don't do that. So it's not a matter of just kind of having a bunch of knowledge at the end of the retreat. Hopefully it's having insight into your own heart and into your own, uh, into your own stuff, yeah? into your own suffering, into your own, you know, the way your mind tortures you or, or, or into the uh, in acts, you know, kind of a confident access into the silence of the mind, to the beauty of the heart, or negative or positive. And if those questions aren't uh, answered, then of course the whole project seems futile. So to be able to have insight into the, the way your mind haunts you with suffering or the way your mind can be liberated from that, to have insight into your own character and conditioning is, is, is the source of, I think, true confidence. Because I know for myself, if I'm really addressing the stuff that's tortured me for a lifetime, or half a lifetime, whatever, and I'm actually seeing it cease, and I'm seeing alternative ways of interpreting life, which are more compassionate and silent and still, then that brings tremendous confidence, doesn't it? Because it works. It works. It's kind of like cooking a good meal. You know, oh, this tastes good. Yeah, I can cook. I know how to do it. So insight is, uh, insight can be, I can, I can intellectually put together some of the teachings and figure it that way. So that's what I did when I was, um, when I was a layman, I was studying some difficult commentaries on, on dependent origination and putting that together with the help of a monk. Venerable Bodhisattva was the first monk I met, this was in India. Is American, and it was. A, I I still have a vague memory of that. That would have been 1972, I think. Still a vague memory of the kind of intellectual headache I was kind of just spinning my mind. What do all these terms mean? You know, what do they? What are they referring to? And how do they cross-reference? And so it took a, a quite a, a struggle intellectually until I finally with his help, began to say, oh, yeah, it's all one piece, doesn't it? It all fits together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see, I see. So that was a good exercise. But then when it came to my own uh, meditation and my own uh, conditions of habitual suffering that I had, then that didn't really come into play. Not immediately, at least. But at least it gave me some kind of way to question myself. So there was this sort of sense of intellectual uh, confidence that I had. And I, I even saw kind of conceit come from that. You know, I thought I really understood it. And then when I became a monk, I understood that I had a lot to understand because I was still suffering. So you can get, you can get that kind of inspiration from just thought. And so you think you know something. But if, if one is suffering and one is still think the Sankaras are really um, bashing you around, and, well, there's something, you know, I still don't understand this. So then the, the, the insight into, as I was reading um, 
trying to prepare some some of the reading for Lumpur Chas Memorial and just reading about his insights with Lumpur Man and where he struggled a long time, a long, long time. And then that kind of basic insight, which we all, all hear that Lumpur Man said that the, the mind and the mind objects are not the same or the knowing and the objects of knowing are not the same. You know, that the mind objects change and that knowing is that which is stable. <clears throat> and I'm paraphrasing it, I probably have Kind of, but I think it's close enough. Um, that, that was a kind of really, really basic insight for him from which he gained a lot of confidence, but then he had to work with. Now that kind of insight can come from another person, can come from uh, uh, your own working with your mind, can come from a book, but somehow for me it's different than like a, a whole intellectual framework which I built up and I understand it. It's more like like about your existence, some really fundamental thing about your existence. And those kinds of insights lead to a kind of inspiration which is based on on truth, and they lead to a, a practice which is always imbued with that insight. So it's a practice that should be imbued with right, right understanding. Whereas inspiration, when it's not imbued with insight, when it's simply, ah, this would be a good thing to do, from someone else's recommendation, that usually doesn't have legs. It doesn't. It doesn't really carry you far, because it's someone else's idea, and all you're doing is is getting high on the inspiration. And inspiration is very tricky because it can be grounded in something valid, but sometimes it's just the the love of being inspired, it's like falling in love, I suppose. Ooh, this is so nice, <laughs> and then it changes. So an inspiration, if it, people attach to inspiration, they just have an idea. It's like the novelty of a, of, of, a, of a technique. And then they kind of go for it for a while, and it doesn't work. And then they have its opposite, a sense of um, disappointment and, and innervation. So that kind of inspiration is, is based really just on an, a lovely idea. I'm going to do this. This is going to work. And it doesn't have real legs. Inspiration needs to be informed by insight. Why do I get inspired? Why do I do what I do? Why do I pick up a certain kind of practice? Uh, why do I sustain and endure stuff when it's kind of difficult? And that the inspiration to do that comes from, from true insight. So when you make a choice to, to practice whatever you, you want to practice, I would say, like, why do you, why do you choose to pick up an object of meditation? Why do you choose a certain path of practice? Why, why are we here? Kind of question. And then if, if it's grounded in, in an understanding of what, you want, what work you want to do with yourself, what you hope to um, realize or what you hope to let go of, then the steps you take should be, should be quite effective. So, like, why am I here? Why am I doing this retreat? What did I expect from it? Why am I a monk? Why do I practice in this way? What do I expect from it? And what do I need to do? What kind of practices do I need to do to realize the end of suffering and, and the realization of the unconditioned? And so, I know for me, it was around there were certain conditions and emotions of my mind which were perpetually kidnapping me and grabbing me, but also there were insights into the deep silence of the mind and I realized that I had to understand those 
defilements and so on. And, and so the inspiration kind of would come within, within the suffering. Like I, I'd have some really troubling relationship with someone at the monastery. I'd feel just like really intimidated by them maybe. And, and then the inspiration would come, well, that's what's, that's what's preventing me from realizing the silent possibility of the mind, which I've seen, I've seen as possible. And this, this uh, relationship with this person, that's preventing me from understanding that. And then I could see, well, if I can understand that, if I can understand why my mind gets entangled with this particular person, this particular way, then I'll understand something about myself which will last me forever, or at least until this body dies. So I kind of would, I would get inspired by my own ignorance, my own lack of understanding, because it was not, maybe not, inspiration is not the right word, I'd be, I'd be motivated more, because I knew, well, this is a really good opportunity now, I mean, I don't like this person, or I feel really, the person's very off-putting, but there's something so confusing in my mind that this is a chance for me to go beyond the confusion that this creates. And I always thought that if, if, like the fears I've experienced, I thought, if, if you can sort out fear, you're going to sort out about 70% of your suffering. Whereas the, the feeling of fear, I certainly didn't want it. So the, the inspiration to practice with things like fear and so on came from that sense of, this is important, that this hindrance or kilesa or something that manifests as a sankara, but I can't see it as an ichadukhanatta. I, I know the theory... And the theory says this is a, a sankara, it arises because causing conditions, it stays for a while and it ceases according to its energy, da 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 da. And I know that. But here I am, I can keep cutting caught up with it. And this person happens to be, or this bodily feeling happens to be, or this monastery, this weather, whatever, happens to be the thing that triggers off my inability to let go. My inability to, to let go. So um, I think that is where a lot of insight comes from from going into the kinds of sankaras that do that do kidnap us and obsess us and such like. And a retreat or a monastic life or any 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 life of um, spiritual commitment inevitably traps us into uh, mind states and personal relationships which we perhaps didn't expect, which we thought you know we didn't come here for that. I didn't come here for that. I remember being with, like, used to sit beside Ajahn Brahm in, in uh, Wat Nana Chat, and he was always so impeccable, he used to drive me crazy. And I'd be falling asleep, and he'd be kind of really impeccable, and doing everything kind of super right, super bright, always the right answer, and I was fumbling, and I'd feel this incredible you know, kind of jealousy and aversion to him. And yet he was always very kind to me, which would even make it worse. <laughs> Can you just be not, not nice to me, please? And, but I knew it wasn't him and it wasn't me, but it was just that was the mind. The, when, when that situation arose, then the sankaras which were conditioned by that, coming from what? From my own insecurities or whatever, whatever they were. I can't remember, but it would make sense that 
they were just sankara, so I understood the teaching of that which has a nature to rise, has a nature to cease. They're just sankaras, but I didn't know how to just let them go. And I, so I didn't understand that a negative sankara is fine, you just have to be patient with it. I thought I had to do something about it, get rid of it, and be a different person. And that struggle of which wasn't a, wasn't a really moral struggle, and it wasn't a threatening struggle in any physical way, but it was just a struggle of not understanding clearly my, my, own, my own conditioning and the suffering I, I felt. And then being trapped with that day in and day out, day in and day out, was very, very edifying. I began to say, whoa, well, well, this is condition that arises, and when that arises, I don't want it, and when I don't want it, I start thinking about it and try to get rid of it and make it all complex. And then I'd go to Ajahn Sumedho, and he would say, don't think about it. <laughs> Which is actually very wise advice. But I didn't know how to do that either. So, so the struggle, well, that was, that was 1975, I think. It was a few years ago. But, but the struggle was a worthy struggle because it was imbued with this, this desire to be free from suffering. It was imbued with some smattering of, of understanding, you know, some, some, some sense of uh, right direction. But there's still a lot of I didn't understand. And so then struggling with something like that, uh, a certain amount of insight arose. Insight not just about myself and another person, but rather about how the mind works and how to free the mind. And then that insight, of course, begins to be applied quite intuitively. And this is the way insight kind of changes your mind. It's not like, like I found those ideas that I read changed me to some extent, give me a different worldview, but not like insight. Insight goes real deep, doesn't it? You say, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing, I see. And then that gives a kind of different kind of inspiration. It gives a kind of determination to every time that arises, I'm going to try to practice it the way I've learned and, and seen. And that, of course, leads to confidence. The repeated motivation and implementation of an insight. Oh, that was good. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> like I was learning how to do dovetail joints. And then I just try to figure out, how, do you, how does that fit together? And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's how it fits together. And then trying to do it and trying to get a a straight cut and a right angle and the fitting them all together, it's, you know, it'll take me quite a few to get it right. But each time I do it, where am I doing? I'm coming from a certain understanding of how to use a saw, how to keep the saw on the correct angle, how to, where to cut it inside this, you know, on, on which side of the line to cut it. So there's a lot of information and that's like insight. And then the doing, I said, oh, it's really hard to keep the saw on a level plane. Uh, oh, and then I overcut it. Oh, oh yeah, I know. How am I going to take out that bit? Well, how do I use the chisel? And then I do it, and I get an insight, and I do it, and I get an insight, and that insight becomes more and more profound until I have confidence and, and skill. And, and this, so the same with our own, um, the workings of our own minds. They, they're not abstracts. Teachings are abstract, but the stuff we experience is very real, isn't it? Very, very real. So when I, when I don't, when we don't understand something, it really requires a kind of willingness to go into that kind of willingness, not just to blame yourself, 
I said, well, I can't. Well, what is it about these sankaras that just obsess me? Well, you know, why, why can't I just let go? And then that letting go quite often takes quite a few years because they can be so powerful. I remember the kind of first year of meditation at Wat Cha, there was a French monk, and it's such a great story. And he was talking about how his meditation was proceeding, and he'd be meditating, and then he'd set his clock for an hour, and then he'd, without knowing how he got there, he found himself cutting his toenails. <laughs> he had moved from the meditation cushion, gotten the uh, clippers, and was doing his toenails before he came back to consciousness. And that's pretty disheartening, isn't it? Yeah, but he stuck with it. He, and he had a good sense of humor. And and what can you do? If if the karma of heedlessness is so powerful, you, well, what can you do? When you wake up, you wake up. And you, you, know, you start again. So even though, even though there might be some insight into, first of all, intellectual understanding, and then even an, an intuitive understanding of what the way of letting go is, and not attachment and peace, uh, even though that's there, we have to we have to be very uh, kind to ourselves and patient to realize that the the karma of some of these things is is really very very powerful. It just comes back and and back and back and back again and again and again. Uh, and and just like reading Ajahn Chah's thing about his love of food, he just loved noodles, <laughs> and he he'd be dreaming about noodles and bananas, and things like that. He said for a few years. So, or, or the Buddha having, you know, six years of, of uh, extreme self-mortification practices that were totally not working, and, and then finally coming around to that, even the Buddha. So, sometimes we, we, we try, we don't have the insight, why, why this doesn't work, and sometimes there is the insight. But even, even the insight... The practice can feel very disappointing because you you don't seem to be getting anywhere, but you are. You have to have you have to have kind of faith that that constant application of mindfulness to the way things are is producing results maybe that aren't so spectacular. When you read about monks who kind of have spectacular results, you think, well, that's what I should be getting. But sometimes it's like it's much more subtle than that. It's just little by little, little by little, mindfulness becomes stronger, and the habits become weaker. So the confidence is, is how to how to work with it, isn't it? It's not. It doesn't come from necessarily always having the mind. It, like the path isn't one of, I think, constant linear progression. I haven't seen that with monks. The kind of idea, well, this year I'll just chip away at it, chip away at it, and I'll just slowly glide into Nibbana. But, but rather it seems to be more, you know, mountains and peaks and valleys and troughs and you know, great clouds of inspiration and then great clouds of depression. And you know, it doesn't seem to be steady, steady, steady. At some point it does become much more steady and, and grounded. But but sometimes it's surprising how old stuff that you thought you'd work through all of a sudden blasts you. A blast from the blast kind of thing. But if the, if the, if the underlying insight is that all sankaras are of equal value... And that the the way to liberation is the knowing of sankaras has changed, then actually not much can fool you. But if you don't have that insight, then the 
intensity of emotions can seem so off-putting that you start to worry and you don't have the confidence and faith. Well, this will change. And that's the basic thing that one constantly says, this will change, even though it seems pretty awful right now, this will change. Or it seems like beatific right now, this will change too. So that the mind comes to a sense of balanced attention and peaceful attention rather than the ups and downs of inspiration and disappointment. And, and the way you quite often reach that balance is by bearing with something like disappointment. Because like disappointment, it's a particularly unpleasant kind of a thing and it, it takes you to seek another inspiring thing. Disappointment seeks rebirth into the inspiring. And if you refuse that rebirth and you just allow disappointment just to be what it is, as a sankara changing, then it runs its course and it runs its course into the silence of the mind because the mind is no longer seeking an inspiring alternative to the disappointment and depression. It's not going anywhere else. It's just with the way things are. And so what ceases is the craving, the craving to have inspiration and not have disappointment, the craving to have anything in that kind of samsaric stuff that we experience. And it's surprising sometimes where you, you feel some negative emotion or disappointment and you just bear with it. You know, this will change, this will change. And then it goes and it's peaceful. And you think, why, why didn't I have that peace last week? You know, why didn't I have that? Well, you don't realize that the work you did Bearing with the unpleasant was actually the, the which which was the cause for the peace to be there. Sometimes we don't see that. We just say, "Well, I was so negative yesterday, and I'm peaceful now." What's that? Well, maybe it was the because bearing witness to the unpleasant in this way of patience and this will change actually created the causes for desire to die, and as desire dies, you realize the peace of the mind. So sometimes we don't get the connections. Confidence also comes from just like like learning, like in some of the practice, finding really what what appeals to you, like like what kind of practices appeal to you, and and, and honoring that and, and making that strong and making it uh, a kind of constant returning to in, in your practice. And each of us has our our different ways. Lumpa Smith's work with that sound of silence and. Umpapasana was like Sanapanasati and Umpacha, he had his way. So, so having the kind of courage to experiment and try stuff out. But coming from, you know, coming from a place of watching cause and effect rather than just trying to get an effect. So if you try something, just try it for a while and see what's the result. What's the result? Why is that a good result or a bad result? Have the willingness to kind of struggle and, and, and struggle with your piece of wood and make a mess of it. And then but if if the inspiration is just to get something, then again you you're taken by novelty, but then that fails. So sometimes like meditation techniques you just have to stay with them a long, long time until you get some kind of consistent and confident results. And then when you, you feel that confidence you can always turn to turn to your those methods that you use. So it might be the heart, sound of silence different things but you have a you have a it's like a cook you know the cook has, you know, someone brings in a dozen eggs and some uh, and a pumpkin what do you do with a pumpkin if you gave me a pumpkin I wouldn't know what to do with it but a person who knows how to cook oh pumpkins we can do pumpkins 
X, we can do X. You kind of know what to do. It's the same with with the various uh, skills and, and, and methods that we learn about in, in meditation life. Is that you you learn you learn how to open the heart. You learn how to do compassion practices. You learn how to um, be with the body. How to know the body. How to actually use the body as a, as a vehicle for calmness. You know how to use language to encourage yourself and instruct yourself in a in a, in a way of meditation. You learn about posture. How do you use posture? How do you bring energy into the mind? How do you use breath to bring energy? Huh? Uh, and 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 you so you develop all these skills like a cook knows how to cook in many ways and you uh, learn many kinds of uh, foods and dishes and that the meditators are very similar that way it's not just kind of one thing it's a whole range of things but it actually leads to one thing and that's the peace of non grasping the uh, the letting go of the kundas the the cessation of, of craving okay I'll leave that for your consideration. Sadhu Karam Dharma Se Sadhu Sadhu